You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The story begins with Paul visiting a place after leaving Athens. Now, if you remember last week or the several weeks before as well, Paul's been on a journey, and he's been going all over the known world preaching Jesus, preaching that Jesus died on a cross, preaching that Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, the resurrection, in many ways, seems to be Paul's emphasis. That seems to be why in Athens or on Mars Hill, he was kicked out because he was preaching foreign gods, this strange resurrection. People don't come back from the dead, but Jesus did. But after Paul leaves Athens, after Paul leaves Thessalonica or Thessalonica, however you're going to pronounce it, if you ever have trouble pronouncing the words of, in the Bible, just say the first letter and move on. You'll be okay. After Paul leaves Berea, and Thessalonia, and Athens, he comes to a place called Corinth. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping notes in the margin of your Bible and saying, well, this city was like this, this city was like that, Athens was the place of philosophers, or the place of the gods, Um, or now when we get to Corinth, maybe you have a little tagline and say, Corinth was like, if you do have one of those, put Vegas. Corinth is like Vegas. Now, it is a delight to the eye. Every sensation you could possibly imagine is present here. Or if Vegas is too far away, if you've only ever seen it on the commercials, on the TV, and everything in Vegas stays in Vegas is the slogan that you know, but you've never experienced it, you can perhaps think of a place in Florida, maybe Pensacola, where when you go down there, everybody is, everybody's out, they're having a good time, the bars are full, the food, the restaurants are filled, you see plates of of fish just being brought out steaming. Everything is delightful to the eye. The, sens- the sensations that fill your eyes, the lights. We, we were down there a while back, and my kids, they saw uh, zip lines and, and, and rope courses, and their eyes just glued to the window, seeing everything they could possibly see. And you step out of the car, and you're at a restaurant, and you begin to smell the, the scent, the aroma of whatever it is that's your favorite, red snapper, maybe. And it begins to fill your nostrils, and you know the smell of butter and garlic on top of that fish. Oh, and that's going to be good. Sorry if you're going to have to go to Pensacola after today. (laughs) And you hear the sound of the waves, and you go to the ocean, you hear them crash against the seashore, and you can hear the people laughing and playing, and you can hear the sound of the boats as they rush through the water. Corinth. Corinth is everything you can imagine. With one exception, or one addition perhaps. Everybody here, I'm sure, knows how difficult it would be to get a beachside cabin and live there, to make your way there, to start a business down there and and be exceptionally profitable. But that's the one thing Corinth had going for it. The city had been destroyed about 100 or 200 years before this. And when 
when the, the Roman emperor settled it again as a Roman city now, no longer just Greek, but Roman and Greek, as he settled as a Roman city, all of the people who had been slaves for their, their whole life and had been freed went to the city, flocked to the city, and they found immense opportunity for growth, for bettering themselves, for starting a business and making money, for making their way in the world, for having everything that they could ever want, every smell, every taste, every sensation, everything that fills the eyes, and they could do it all they wanted. It was a place of booming growth. So Paul sails across, or actually doesn't sail across at this point, but he just walks down. He takes the road down onto this small strip of land that stretches out into the ocean pretty far, a place called Corinth. And he goes there, and the sights and the sounds, they fill your eyes, and you could do anything you ever wanted. And there's so many people, because it's a port town, it's, it's a, it, because it's a small strip of land, it connects the eastern world, I guess it's this way for you, the eastern world with the western world. So people would sail their ships and they would port down here and they would put their, their goods on a cart and they actually had a, a rudimentary railroad track. They would put their, peop, their, their things on a cart and they would have 150 men push six miles from one port through the city of Corinth all the way to the other port so that on the other side they could take their goods and sail it to the western world. So people are 150 men pushing these carts, sweating heavily, and then after their day's work is done and they receive their payment, they go to the city and they do whatever it is they want to do. You can imagine things that they would have wanted to do. You can imagine because uh, we still have jokes about port towns and sailors. Where do you think those things come from? In fact, Corinth was such a place that it was made into a verb. You could Corinthase, you could Corinthiate yourself, and you can imagine what that might mean. Or if you were a Corinthian, if you were a male, it meant one thing, and if you were a female, it meant another thing, but both of them pretty certain what you might mean. And so Paul climbs down to this isthmus, to this small jut of land where Commerce is booming, and everything is available. Where every two years, the Isthmus Games, the Olympics are held. Olympics were actually in Olympia, but this was the counterpart. This is the summer Olympics to the winter. And he sets up shop. It just so happens that he runs into a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, and they happen to be in the same trade as him, Tent makers or leather makers, uh, Paul would have, had, uh, would have had the ability to carry small leather making tools, awls and hammers, and uh, to be able to move about freely from city to city rather, rather quickly without much concern. And so he was a tent maker or a leather maker or a leather, uh, he wasn't a tanner, but he would, he would cut the cloth and he would sew into things, sometimes tents, maybe even tents for people who were coming to visit for the Olympics, for the Isthmus Games. And Paul just so happens to meet a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And they're in the same trade as him. But the reason that they're in Corinth 
isn't because they wanted to, isn't because they just decided to take the trip down for the day. Rather, it's because they were in Rome, in Italy. And Caesar said, all of the Jews have to leave. They got kicked out. Now, history, the Bible doesn't say at this point, but history books tell us the reason they were kicked out, the reason that Jews were kicked out of Rome was because there was some sort of disturbance revolving around a word or a name, Christos, Christos, which isn't really how you say Christ in Greek, but they didn't know what the word meant. They didn't know that it came from the Jewish word for Messiah, and that it was just moved over into Greek. And so they would say Christos, and they didn't know what it meant. So they kicked out all of the Jews because there was this large disturbance occurring among the population. And so some of the Jews, specifically those who worshipped or followed Christ, decided this is probably a good time to leave, and so they did. Priscilla and Aquila came to Corinth, a booming city where after they've lost everything, they've lost their business, they've lost their home back in Rome, they could perhaps start again. So they set up in the Jewish quarter. They maybe have a shop down, on, down at, the, at the base level, and they, they climb up every night to sleep on a, on a sort of um, a loft. And Paul, one day, walking through the city, happens upon them. How great it would be to find Someone doing the exact same thing. You don't have to own your own shop. Paul knows that he's not here primarily to set up shop to become a leather worker extraordinaire, but rather that he's here for preaching the gospel. So how great it was for Paul to come across a couple of people who already set up shop, who do the same thing as him. They already have the table laid out and that he can just participate. And they're Jewish. They're just like him. And so he settles in. And together they work side by side and leather making, it's a relatively quiet task. There's no large hammers banging against anvils. You're not a blacksmith. You don't have to hawk goods yelling about how your perfume smells better than the other perfume. You can just easily, nicely, quietly cut leather, sew, maybe a few hammers here and there to poke a hole. So Paul, with Priscilla and Aquila, had a chance to talk with everybody around, everybody who would come to the shop, he could talk about the one thing he cared about most. Was it the halibut? Was it the red snapper? Was it how cool it was to go on that rope bridge? Or his new boat that he's hoping to get with all of the finances he's earning from leather making? No, for Paul, one thing and one thing only, that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. Now, Paul has to support himself. So he works weekly. He works every day in the, in the leather shop. And then every Saturday, on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue where all the Jews are gathered, and he begins to tell them, hey, I want to tell you about the Messiah that you've been reading about. And so every Saturday, he enters in the synagogue and he teaches and he talks. There was a time in the, in the, in the hour, in the day at synagogue, where guests, where guests or visiting preachers were given the opportunity to speak. Like, a open, like an open floor, if you are trained or you know how to do this, you are welcome to come and teach us. 
And so Paul takes advantage of that opportunity. In the afternoon, the crowds were a little bit lower. Uh, he takes advantage of that opportunity to talk about Jesus every Sabbath day. And then Sunday is a work day for them, so he goes back to work. I mean, it's the Lord's day for the, for the believers, but it's still a work day. And so he goes back to work, and he talks about Jesus to anybody who comes in his shop. Day in, day out, Saturday, the highlight of his week. But one day, somebody comes to Corinth as well. One day, somebody sails into the port, and they walk about five or six miles to the city. The city's, I mean, it's big to walk around. It's, it's about a square mile-ish. It's about 700 acres. So if you're going to make your way from one end of the city to the other end of the city, you've got to plan the trip. But one day... Two people walk into his leather shop, Timothy and Silas. These are two people that Paul has worked alongside before. He's, he's preached the gospel with them. He's taught them in some way. He's discipled them. He's showed them what Jesus has uh, done in the world, and he's journeyed with them somewhat. And one day, walking into Corinth, perhaps even walking into the synagogue while Paul is preaching, are his friend Silas and Timothy. And Silas and Timothy bring a great gift. They bring money. Now, for us, we might think, oh, great money. I can live more comfortably now. But for Paul, it means one thing. For Paul, it means one thing. It means I no longer have to spend Sunday through Friday in the leather shop. Now I can spend all of my time teaching about Jesus. Silas and Timothy, two friends indeed, show themselves to be friends indeed. They, in action, bring something to Paul. And it's gathered together from multiple churches around the area. They bring together finances to support Paul in his ministry so that he can continue preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Now, can you imagine yourself? You're in the middle of Pensacola. You, you're borrowing somebody's apartment. You're sleeping on their couch. And your friends come to visit you. What are they going to find you doing? Most likely, if we're just honest, most likely if we're just honest, we're probably going to be sitting on the beach. We're probably going to be dipping our toes in the water. We're probably going to be out eating. We're going to be doing something fun. But when Silas and Timothy come, what do they find Paul doing? The text says, Paul was occupied. He was busy. He was occupied in the word. Oh, were that we were such people. Were that we were such people that if somebody went to Disneyland, they would find us occupied in the word. Were that if somebody found us on our boat, that we were occupied in the word. Now, I understand we do those things as vacation because we have a short period of time. We don't live there. We don't do those things. Uh, when we were down in Pensacola, we went into a coffee shop, and I saw three people having a Bible study. And I know they're having a Bible study because they live there, not because they went there for the weekend, right? There's definitely a difference. But for Paul... 
he is not occupied with Corinthiating. He is not occupied with the sights and smells and sounds. Rather, Paul is occupied in the word. And in fact, the presence of Silas and Timothy, the gift that he brings, allows Paul to be more occupied. From then on, he's be, he begins to be occupied not with tanning or, or leather making, rather. He begins to make his full-time occupation preaching and proclaiming that Christ is the Messiah. I can imagine for Paul when he first entered Corinth that he was, he was perfectly okay with going back to his trade that he grew up in. His father probably a leather maker or perhaps his father sent him away to learn from somebody else. He was probably okay with returning to that work and, and talking about Jesus on Saturday he was, and, and as much as he could in the shop. But it probably wasn't quite his expectation. He probably didn't think, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. But I wonder, I wonder how many people entered that leather shop looking for a nice pair of shoes, looking for a tent so they could go watch the games, looking for a good leather overcoat so that when the sea spray hits them on the boat, they're not shivering cold. And how many of them walked out wondering about the carpenter? Wondering about Jesus? Wondering about the God who became man, who took on human flesh and lived a life among us, not so that he could build boats, but so that he could rebuild the world? You see, Paul probably had certain expectations but God's action does not depend on our expectation. God's action does not depend on our expectation. And when Paul or when Silas and Timothy come and they bring Paul this gift of money, Paul is given the opportunity to go and to talk about Jesus every day that he's in Corinth, every day of his life. You see, God still acts whether we expect it or not. And in that day, there's no way Paul could have expected money is coming at this time or that time. But when they found him, he was occupied in the word. And it gave him the opportunity to be occupied even more. And so, given this opportunity, he begins to preach more and more. So much, in fact, that people begin to get angry. People don't believe what he is saying. People don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who was to come, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Adam, the promised child that was birthed by the virgin. Some of these Jews in the synagogue did not believe, so much so that Paul shook out his clothes and said, your blood is on your own head. I mean, we, we hear lots of vain threats, right? Like people on social media will say lots of things. Uh, the people sometimes get angry or maybe you deal with it. In a, if, you have a, if you know a confrontational person or if you are a confrontational person, maybe you hear threats. Maybe you make threats to your kids and then you regret making those threats later. But can you imagine somebody who is entirely serious in a world in a world where cursing and blessing when when somebody sees and you say bless you you actually mean it 
Can you imagine in a world somebody saying, your blood is on your own head? That's intimidating, right? In a world where people are sacrificing bowls of fruit so that there's not a storm when they go out to the ocean. In a world where they're pouring out goblets of wine so that their crops will grow. When Paul says, your blood is on your own head, that means something. That's severe. And he doesn't just shake out his shoes or his sandals, like Jesus told the 72, if you go into a house and, and, the, and they're, they're peaceful with you, you can remain there, but if they're not, then you shake out your shoes and you walk away, you shake the, shake the dust off your feet. It's not that. It's not quite as bad as, as Jonah when he rips his clothes, or rather the king that Jonah preaches to rips his clothes and stands in sackcloth and ashes and, and, and just repents for everything. It's somewhere in between, though, isn't it? It's somewhere in between, oh, I'm done with you, and, and I'm, I'm in desperation. It's somewhere in the middle. And I don't think many of us have been there, and I doubt many of us have been there for the same reason that Paul has. And yet, in his, or in the rejection of Paul, in the Jews' rejection of Paul at the synagogue, God's action does not depend, is not dependent on our expectations. So what does Paul do after he talks about Jesus being the Messiah and nobody wants to accept it, nobody wants to believe him, or perhaps some do. He's persuasive. Some of them are, are believing, but it's sort of dividing down the center of the synagogue. What does he do? He threatens them. He shakes it out. I've been the watchman. I've been the guy on the gate, and I've said, look, Death is coming. Repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one to save you from the doom to come, and you didn't believe, I'm done. I've done my task. I'm not responsible for you anymore. So he moves next door. Perhaps there's a rival faction occurring here. Perhaps now every Saturday there's the synagogue, and then there's Eustace's house. And in Eustace's house, there's you know, Paul, and some people who were in the synagogue, and now they're coming over here next door, and they're hearing Paul preach, and perhaps Paul is preaching loud enough that the person who runs the synagogue, Crispus, overhears it one Saturday and breaks down crying, saying, I believe, I believe, finally, the Messiah that we've been looking for, he's finally here. What do you think that text was? What do you think was the turning point, the linchpin for the leader of the synagogue? Every Saturday, he's in here talking about God, talking about God from the Old Testament, from the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy. What do you think was the passage that was last in his mind when he finally realized Jesus is the one? Paul is kicked out of the synagogue, and you would think that's the end of it for the synagogue. He's cast his blood on them or cast their blood back upon them. And you would think that's the end. He's done. Paul said he's over. He's finished with them. They're like a bad ex-girlfriend that he never wants back. You can laugh. It's okay. It's in every country song. <laughs> but now, the expectations do not demand what God does because God's action is not dependent on our expectation. 
So when Paul moves next door, the synagogue is not done with. The Jews are not over. The ruler of the synagogue comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was to come, and in fact, the one who is to come. And there were many Corinthians, many people who lived in this environment, many Jews, many people who were also not Jews but just believed that all of the the fancy things that were out there don't satisfy. There must be something more. Perhaps it's this Jesus guy who came back from the dead. And so all these Jews and Corinthians and, and Crispus, the synagogue leader, they all believe what Paul has to say. And so the counter synagogue, the side church, the small group, becomes the church the real one, the place where everybody goes, even the synagogue leader. Now you can imagine as Paul speaks with Priscilla and Aquila and as he's, as he's seeing all of these mass converts, as he's seeing people uh, begin to, to strive against him, to compete against him, you can imagine in Paul's mind there's a little bit of danger here. After all, Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out of Rome. All of the Jews were exiled from there. Because of some Crestus guy, some Crestus guy, some fellow over there who is stirring up trouble. So, Paul goes to sleep at night, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, which may not have been that uncommon, and he sees a vision, the vision of Jesus. And Jesus says, do not be afraid, or better yet, Stop fearing. Keep preaching. I will ensure that no harm comes to you. You know, Paul, having come to faith long after Christ, being from a generation after, maybe a child when Jesus was walking around, and having heard about Jesus and having received revelation, received visions from him, I wonder how much he knew about Jesus' promise at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, if you're King James, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Did Paul have that promise? Did he think about it often? Was it in his mind? Well, I can tell you what. He heard it that night. Stop fearing. Keep on preaching. No harm will come to you. In other words, I am with you. Wherever God's word goes, God's spirit goes also. And where God's spirit goes, the promise of Jesus goes. I am with you. So if Paul was expecting to be kicked out of the city, well, God's action is not dependent upon our expectation. Keep on preaching. So Paul does for a year and a half. He continues to preach. He continues to teach about who Jesus is and what he has done and after a year and a half, something happens. People have continued to be riled up 
There's been an instigator, perhaps, who's rallied the troops and said, we've got to get Paul to stop. So they all surround him one day, and they say, we're taking you to court. Well, he's surrounded. He goes with them. He walks with them to this open seat, this big stone. You can imagine large pillars, maybe 12 feet tall, and this large slab of stone with a guy sitting on top. That's power. That's a statement, at least. And this guy, this guy, Gallio, the proconsul of this entire region, this governor who rules over everything, who, who has a say in what happens in the city, they, the Jews, they drop him down, drop Paul down before this guy who's standing on this or sitting on this stone tablet. And they say, he's been teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, if we know anything about Paul yet, and we'll certainly see more of this before the book of Acts ends, if we know anything about Paul yet, Paul likes to open his mouth, right? He likes, uh, people start to accuse him, so he, he takes a seat in the center of the Areopagus and he, on the stage, and he begins to talk, right? Or he's brought before one ruler, and he just, he starts talking to people. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. Or people come to him with an argument and say, hey, what about this faction over here? They disagree. Well, Paul talks. So he's brought before this governor, and what we would expect is, well, Paul's, Paul's about to talk, and maybe even the governor is going to be converted. Maybe people are going to believe because of this. They drop him down and they say, this guy's been teaching people contrary to the law. So what does Paul say? Before Paul could even speak, it's like he opens his mouth and he's left hanging. The, the, the proconsul, the governor of the region says, I don't care. Now the governor had a lot of tasks. He had maybe to answer 700 people in a day. He had to make better than one person or one case per minute. Can you imagine being not only having that power, but being responsible for it. Your decision in less than, or in 30 seconds, responsible for the life of an individual. But that's what this man did. So he hears them talk about Paul, and he was teaching people contrary to the law to worship God, and he thinks, this has nothing to do with me. I don't care. Go away. And in that one statement, the statement of, uh, what's the word, apathy, in a statement of, non-caringness, Paul, first of all, doesn't get a chance to speak, doesn't get a chance to convert the governor, but everybody who is under that governor, every judge who has to listen to that word, now sees Paul and the rest of the Christians as, well, we're not supposed to care about what they say. In fact, it does one better for us. It shows us that in the eyes of the world, the fact that Paul was preaching a Messiah of the Jews shows us that really the Jewish faith is the Christian faith, or that it ought to be. That Jesus is the Messiah, as Paul would say, first of the Jew and then to the Greek. It shows us, in other words, that there's no division between the Testaments. That the God who was then is the God who is now, that the same God who created the heavens and the earth, that the same God who, pick your favorite story, the same God who directed a small pebble to kill a giant or to knock him out before David killed him, the same God who called lightning and fire down from heaven to burn up the altar, 
That God is your God. That God is the one you worship. That God is the one who can say, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Because he has power. He can do something about it. And so Paul continues to preach for some time after this event before eventually, for whatever reason, he determines it's time to go. Perhaps when he was back with the church in Jerusalem or um, the other one that starts with an A. Somebody with me? Uh, Antioch, thank you, thank you. Or perhaps when he was back with the Antioch church and they sent him out. Perhaps he said, I'm going to be gone for this amount of time. And so he, he goes back. He, he begins to walk down to the port Kentry and he shaves his hair because he makes a new vow and he sails to a couple more places. He lands in a place called Ephesus and that's what in literary terms is going to be foreshadowing for Luke, uh, the author. He, he writes Ephesus. And he spends a little bit of time in Ephesus. And even the, the synagogue in Ephesus loves Paul so much that they say, please stay with us, Paul. A synagogue does, which is the exact opposite of what just happened, right? But instead of agreeing, he continues on. He says, uh, if, if the Lord wills, if God wills it, I'll come back. And then he leaves again, perhaps to fulfill his vow. And so we see how in Paul, everything seems to happen in almost the exact opposite way, not always, not always the exact opposite way, but just unexpected ways. He goes to the city of lights, and he works in a leather shop, and he has to supply his own finances in order to preach on Saturdays. And one day, a couple of friends show up, and they help him out, and he's able to go and preach, but when he preaches, he gets kicked out. But when he gets kicked out, the person of the synagogue comes to believe, and then he continues to preach for a year and a half, and he's brought before the governor. And the governor says, I don't care. And then after he says, I don't care, Paul is able to go on preaching. And then he finds a place that actually wants him. But he's already made a vow, and he can't stay there. But God's action is not dependent on your expectation. And so whatever it is that you expect God is supposed to be doing at this time in your life with these people or that children, that child or yourself, God's action doesn't depend on your expectation. That's good news, even if it is scary news at times. Can you imagine being Abraham? And hearing God's word say to him, take your son, your only son, and kill him. But God's action is not dependent on our expectation. And it may be that as you drive home today, you get in a debilitating car accident. And you have to spend the rest of your life in a bed. But God 
the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God that you worship and serve. You don't have to bring sacrifices so that the sea stays calm. You don't have to pour out goblets of wine so that your crops grow. Your God is bigger than that. So in your life or the life of your friends or the life of your children or the life of your spouse, keep praying. Keep looking. Search for wisdom. But just know, you may plan your way. If you know the proverb, you've already completed it. The Lord plans your steps. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.